listening to Gleanings, the monthly newsletter from Strategies at Work, podcast edition, November 1st, 2019. Today's episode is titled, Special Grace. Well, good morning. This morning, we want to talk out of Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, and our title is Formation of the Ecclesia by the Holy Spirit. The judgment of God on the world because of the narcissism of the Tower of Babel participants was confusion in the form of multiple languages, making communication and collaboration among people difficult. When Jesus issued his mandate to the original apostles to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the majority the major obstacles were human impotency, but is human lack of power and language. The promised Holy Spirit provided both divine potency for illumination, faith and action and enabled communication of this truth in all languages. The Old Testament Ecclesia was based on the premise of the efficacy of human potency. Israel demonstrated the fallacy of this assumption and therefore the need for divine potency for salvation and to build the ecclesia. Pentecost was the pivotal day when, for the first time, the followers of Jesus were internally empowered by the Holy Spirit to be agents of Christ to build his ecclesia. With this, the formation of the New Testament ecclesia commenced. Pentecost was the second of three major annual Jewish feasts celebrated the seventh week after the Passover to commemorate the completion of the harvest. The first feast was the Passover that celebrated God's redemption of the Israelites from bondage in Egypt and his protection during this process. The Passover began on the 15th day of the month of Nisan, which is the first month. The third feast was the day of atonement, which we know as Yom Kippur. That is the reconciliation of the Jewish peace people to God. Leviticus chapter 16. This celebration commenced on the 10th day of the seventh month. All of these feasts find their fulfillment in Jesus. The three feasts could also be typology for the three tenses of salvation. The Passover reflects the redemptive process that begins with regeneration. Pentecost reminds us of the process of sanctification administered to and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the Day of Atonement looks to the completion of the salvation process in glorification and unity with God for eternal life. The coming of the Holy Spirit to empower the followers of Jesus was a singularity. This means that the events surrounding Pentecost were not necessarily all normative, but Pentecost marked the beginning of new norms, new prescriptive practices for the ecclesia. One of the challenges or challenges of interpreting the book of Acts is to discern the singularities for, from the norms. That is, separate things that were singular events that were not intended to be normative from those things that were intended to be normative. The New Testament Ecclesia was divinely initiated and divinely built by the Holy Spirit. The members of the Ecclesia would be added not based on ancestry, but based on the sovereign choice of God. All ethnicities would be encompassed, but not exclusively. Salvation was not universal. Members of the Ecclesia were sovereignly chosen. As the Ecclesia was built, there was a progressive process of unfolding revelation. The New Testament Ecclesia started with Jews at the Jewish feast 
who had a traditional Jewish understanding of the Old Testament. The book of Acts is in part a record of their growing knowledge and understanding of the gospel of the kingdom of God and how to live as Jesus's disciples, his agents on earth who were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Starting on the day of Pentecost, the wonderful acts of God, the kingdom of God, advent of Christ, his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and legacy were proclaimed. The Holy Spirit empowered the original apostles and other followers of Jesus with illumination, faith, boldness, and power for signs and wonders, including miraculous power to communicate in languages they did not know. The first 13 verses of of Acts 2 set the stage for Peter. That is, this is that. In other words, Peter's going to give a this is that explanation of the events of the day of Pentecost beginning in chapter 2, verse 14. This grounds the New Testament ecclesia and the kingdom of God in Old Testament prophecy, meaning there was continuity between the Old Testament and New Testament, and Luke is going to go to great extremes to make that clear in the rest of Acts 2. But this morning, let's focus on the preparation for the this is that explanation of Peter. This is Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, which reads, When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, look, aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia. In Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. They were all astounded and perplexed and said to one another, what does this mean? But some sneered and said, they're drunk on new wine. All right, so taking the first uh, few verses here, let's look at Acts chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Ten days after Jesus' ascension, the apostles and the followers of Jesus, probably the 120, were gathered. Perhaps they were in the house with the upper room, the place where they were staying in Jerusalem. The exact location is not specified by Luke. Verse 2, suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. The Holy Spirit's advent was marked first by an auditory manifestation. Those gathered heard a sound compatible to a violent rushing wind from heaven. Now, I have no clue what that sounds like, but they obviously interpreted it accordingly. The only explanation for this was something outside the physical dimension, something from heaven 
is invading us. The sound filled the house. The Greek word here that's translated wind only appears one other time in the New Testament in Acts chapter 17, verse 25. In that text, it's translated breath of life. Perhaps a reminder of Genesis 2, 7 that states that the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and man became a living being. That's when you see God turning something that was inanimate into animate that only God can do. In addition to his divine origin, the wind is also described as violent and rushing. And these are present participles, meaning this this went on for a while. We don't know how long, but it was not just a momentary event. It was something that was happening over some period of time. Now, the fact that the followers of Jesus were sitting at the time suggests that they were both surprised and passive. They weren't expecting this. This was totally a shock to them. They had no idea it was coming. And they certainly were not the cause of it. This was not some made-up, contrived human activity. This was a divine intervention. Verse 3, they saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each of them. First, there was an audible sound, the rushing wind. And second, there was a visual sign over each person, tongues like flames of fire. So they, they have very, very real experiences here, hearing and now seeing. The words flames of were not in the text. And that, in other words, the word flames of are inferred. Literally, it is tongues or glossa. Glossa is the Greek word like fire distributed to each person. So in some way, it was images like fire, but they looked like tongues. The distribution was clearly of divine origin. The tongues represented instruments of speech. Initially, only those gathered in the house heard and saw these signs. Perhaps the fact that the visual manifestation was given to each person is an indicator that whatever this experience was, it was for all who know Christ, because this group represented his disciples, his followers. It became his starting point for building his ecclesia. And perhaps this intimated that the commission of Acts 1-8, though given to the apostles specifically, was intended as a universal commission for the ecclesia. Verse 4, then they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them or an alternative way to say that, as the Spirit gave them utterance. The first audible sound was the mighty wind from heaven, and the second audible sound was from each person in the room. They began to speak in different tongues or languages. Now, we have no idea when that first started whether or not the people in the room could understand each other. We know eventually people from outside are hearing it and drawn to it, and they understand it because they are proselytes, I mean, not proselytes and Jews who are part of the dispersion. And because they were part of the dispersion, they lived in foreign countries and knew at least another language. And they were hearing these people speak in languages of their, of where they were living. They're in Jerusalem temporarily, but they have the, they have the ability to speak in these other languages where they happen to be born. The apostles and the disciples probably connected this experience to Acts 1-8 and John 14, 15-17. Because keep in mind, we're talking to people who are very knowledgeable on not only Old Testament scripture, 
But these people were very knowledgeable on the words of Christ, what he said while he was here. They were witnesses of these things. So they would remember Acts 1.8, which says, but you, that is you apostles, will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And you've got to know from their Jewish tradition, they didn't have a lot in the Old Testament about the Holy Spirit. There's only a couple occasions where it talked about people being filled with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. One was Joshua, and the other time was with the the artist who built the tabernacle, construction people. In fact, that was the very first time it's mentioned in scripture that someone is filled in the Holy Spirit was construction workers building the tabernacle. That's a very interesting reality. But they had a limited exposure to this concept from scripture. But Jesus had told them, this is coming. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. That would be a new concept, a new idea for them, even though they're very knowledgeable in the Old Testament scripture. Then John 14, verse 15 through 17, part of the upper room discourse, they would have been very familiar with this. Jesus told them, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. See, that's one of the marks of a true believer is obedience. And I will ask the father and he will give you another counselor. A parakaleo is the word there. Someone called beside you to call you into alignment with me. That's what he's talking about. We use the word counselor today just of anybody that's going to give you advice. It's not the sense of it. It's really the sense of calling you into alignment with Christ. So he will give you this parakaleo to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is not is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. This is an indwelling Holy Spirit that's coming. So the apostles and fellow disciples of Jesus experienced the fulfillment of a prophetic word from Jesus. This was the requisite empowerment for them to be witnesses of his resurrection, which is the linchpin of Christianity. And it's now the basis for his legacy, which is building the New Testament ecclesia. The full scope of the empowerment of Jesus promised in Acts 1.8 is not fully explained but may be inferred. So I'm going to give you some thoughts about what this meant. Number one, regeneration. And this was predicted by Jeremiah when he stated that the law would no longer be an external regulation written on tablets of stone, but in the new covenant, the law would be written on the hearts of the people. So that is kind of speaking of regeneration. Next, boldness. Boldness to be willing to die for Christ, as Stephen did. You see, they were called to be witnesses. That's the Greek word for witnesses, Marte, which we get martyr from. You see, if you truly, you truly empowered by the Holy Spirit, you will be empowered to do whatever God has called you to do, even death. And you see that with Stephen, who's the first martyr in Acts 7. And by the way, the first martyr was not one of the original apostles. He was actually one of the first people um, recognized using the C4 principle in Acts 6 to the pro, to the process and to the ministry of food distribution. And you see the power of ministry in all areas. And it doesn't matter who you are, wherever you're called, you can be called to some very lofty works, including being a martyr for Christ. Also, the idea of empowerment includes faith. The marker of those who are truly justified by God is faith. That's what Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9 tells us. 
and Habakkuk 2, 4 as well. Those who are justified before God will live by faith. So now the Holy Spirit empowers us to really express faith in Christ. And then obedience. An example of obedience is Abraham when he obeyed God and was willing to sacrifice Isaac, his only heir, and the one through whom God said that the promise would be fulfilled. He had faith to believe that even God could raise from the dead if necessary. So he was willing to obey God. That's faith. You obey God when it just absolutely looks like, how could this possibly work? This makes no sense, but you obey God. So obedience, the power for obedience is part of the empowerment. Supernatural signs, clearly you see examples of this throughout the book of Acts. We're going to be noting these things and illumination of the spirit. In 2 Corinthians 3, it's clear that the Israelites had a veil. They had a veil of blindness where they could not fully see scripture. Isaiah talks about people seeing but not seeing and hearing but not hearing. Jesus delivered parables where he he specifically was trying to keep them from understanding because they had a veil of blindness and God doesn't cast pearls to swine. He's not going to give you something you have the ability to really see and comprehend. So he he veiled the truth in parables and then explained the parables to his followers. So the illumination of the scripture was very much a needed thing at that time and is still needed. And the Holy Spirit is the illuminator. First Corinthians chapter two. The manifestation of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit was given to all the early disciples gathered with the apostles in Jerusalem. Whether this incident was their regeneration or perhaps simply the empowerment for the sanctification was not clarified. We don't have more details on that. So going on to the next section, uh, I'm not going to read verses 5 through uh, 13 again. I'm just going to go into verse 5 here. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, devout people, and from every nation under heaven. In addition to the followers of Jesus, there were respected Jewish people living in Jerusalem, some of whom were part of the Jewish dispersion, who had integrated into the ethnic groups of the world, but had not lost their Jewish roots. The dispersion of the Jewish people was part of the judgment of God on the Old Testament Ecclesia for their failure to obey the Mosaic law. These Jews with a second ethnicity may have been only temporary residents of Jerusalem and in addition to Hebrew and or Aramaic, spoke the language of their second ethnicity. Luke's reference to every nation, that is every ethnicity, may be a hyperbole here. His point was that there were Jews from virtually every ethnic group in the world that witnessed the inauguration of the New Testament Ecclesia. Verse six, when this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one of them heard heard someone speaking in his own language. In other words, they're seeing their their native language from their place of birth, which was outside of Israel, being their first language. And now their Hebrew Aramaic skills were their second language. The sounds of those inside the house were heard by those outside. We don't know exactly how that happened. We're not told exactly where this was. There's some that speculate this may have all happened in the temple area. That may be true. We just don't have those details. We obviously don't need those details. But we know that they were these people, these 120 who were speaking in tongues, speaking all these different languages, they were heard by other people. These Jews from foreign lands were surprised to hear their languages. 
By this time, the Jewish people were so ensconced in the dispersion that they considered the foreign lands their second home. In fact, they may consider it their first home and considered Israel to be their second home. I don't know exactly how they saw that, but they were connecting to both. This suggests that the people can become so familiar and comfortable with the consequences of sin, which Israel was dispersed in judgment for their sin. So the dispersion is a testimony to sin and the failure of Israel to obey the, the commandments of God. And that is a testimony to the, the inability of mankind in and of his own strength to be able to obey God. But we can become so comfortable in sin and the judgment for sin that we view an exiled state as normative. Verse 7, they were astounded and amazed, saying, look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? That's a rhetorical question with an implied answer. Said, yes, they're Galileans. That's who they are. Now, they may not totally been Galileans, but there were enough Galileans among them that they thought they were basically Galileans. And Galileans were not highly respected. You can see this in John 1, verse 46. The sounds that were heard by the diverse visitors were stunningly, stunningly unexpected coming from Galileans. How could this be? What, what's going on here? Verse 8, how is it that each of us can hear in our own native, and that means the language of your birth. Our native language is our birth language. The reference here to the language of their birth intimated that dispersed Jews had adopted the foreign lands as their home. Though they were in Jerusalem to celebrate their Jewish heritage, they were dual citizens. Instead of being singularly focused on aligning with the will and ways of God, they embraced their dispersion as part of their identity. What a picture for all of us. We, we are not citizens of this world, but we live like citizens of this world. We act like we have dual citizenship, that we're part of the family of God, and yet we're in the world as well. And we have to know that that is dual citizenship. That is not a proper way to see reality. Consequently, these generally Jewish, uh, this, these dispersed people that were Jews from the, uh, that lived in these foreign lands, they adopted the cultural norms of the world, not just from God. This is a warning for all of us. We can become very comfortable in our failures. We can be very comfortable in our deception. We can be very comfortable in judgment. And we need to learn to recognize the reality and, and deal with it accordingly. Okay, verses 9 through 11 list these places these people are from. And I've already read that, so I'm not going to read it again. Let me just note that Luke noted people in Jerusalem from 16 locations, inferring that each had a different native language. The locations included the Middle East, ancient Asia, which is modern-day Turkey, North Africa, an island in the Mediterranean, and even Rome. So we have just this vast area of, of geography that these various pagan people, you know, live in. The Jews, the Jews that are dispersed there and live there are associated with them, taking their customs and languages, but now they happen to be in Jerusalem for this feast, and now they're hearing something they've never heard before. They don't know quite what it is. Perhaps this vast geographical area represented by the dispersion conveyed a sense of partial fulfillment of Acts 1.8. You see, the Old Testament Ecclesia was Jewish, and the New Testament Ecclesia began as a Jewish community. In time, however, it would be clear that the Gentiles will be included as well, 
Right now, these Jews don't know, don't fully understand the gospel, don't really understand what the ecclesia is going to be like, and don't really understand that this is God's promise that in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis chapter 12. So there, there's a lot of perplexion and a lot of confusion, even among the apostles and the disciples. It's also going to be among the people hearing them. So verse 12 says, they all were astounded and perplexed, saying to each other, what does this mean? Now, these are the people observing the apostles and the disciples who are speaking in tongues. They don't know what to make of this. As, as should be expected, observers heard the followers of Jesus, presumed to be Gentiles, speaking in various languages. They were amazed and perplexed, perhaps like the apostles were at the ascension. You remember at the ascension in uh, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, the, the uh, followers of Jesus are just staring at Jesus going up into heaven and just not knowing what to make of this. And it's the angels who say to them, why are you staring? You know, go back to Jerusalem. And start praying and seeking the Lord and getting ready because you're going to be empowered. So that's what we have here is the people, the followers of Jesus now are empowered and they have more revelation. Now the people observing them don't have a clue what's really going on. And you have the skeptics among them saying, but some sneered and said they're drunk on wine. And of course, Peter will address that in verse 14, which we'll pick up next time. The skeptics among the crowd claim the people were drunk which Peter quickly debunked and would become clear. This was the commencement of Jesus' legacy, the building of his ecclesia, an efficacious ecclesia that would grow until the second advent of Jesus and the final solution to sin and death would be fully affected. You see, Christ provided the basis for the, he did the final work that was necessary to seal the end of sin and death but the execution of the sentence, the execution of the verdict of, of sin and death being absolutely eradicated won't happen until the second advent. The promised divine empowerment came to the original apostles and first disciples of Jesus. They were all empowered. The visual and auditory signs marked the beginning of Jesus, carrying out his legacy through his followers, of building the New Testament ecclesia. Israel. The Old Testament ecclesia failed because it lacked the power. The human potency had demonstrated that without divine potency from the Holy Spirit, the ecclesia cannot be built. A key sign that building the New Testament ecclesia had commenced was the ability to communicate the wonderful acts of God in different languages. The language barrier from the judgment on the Tower of Babel project was overcome. The implication was that everyone will be able to hear of the magnificent works of God. This included empowering mankind to fulfill the creation mandate and ultimately restore God's uncontested rule over his creation. You see a, a great purpose here in sending the Holy Spirit to empower mankind is to empower mankind to obey the creation mandate at a level that a that fallen mankind could never do by himself. He must be divinely empowered to be able to do that. That's why you don't see hardly any success in the Old Testament fulfilling the creation mandate. You, all you see is the flaws and the depravity, the total depravity of man, and therefore man's inability to completely satisfy the standards of God, and therefore mankind's inability to obey God.
So let's talk about some theology. The Holy Spirit empowers the building of the ecclesia. Jesus told Nicodemus that one could not enter, even see the kingdom of God, unless one was regenerated. Nicodemus responded with confusion, which shocked Jesus. It's amazing, Jesus was shocked, but he was. How could a Jewish leader not understand regeneration? Jesus responded to Nicodemus in these words, are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? The pedestrian understanding of the Old Testament scripture, even among the leaders, was veiled by the, by, impaired by the veil of blindness because the Jews did not know Jesus as the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. Therefore, they crucified him. According to the Apostle Paul, only when a person turns to Jesus was the veil of blindness removed. 2 Corinthians 3, 13 through 16. The Holy Spirit is the illuminator of the scripture who removes the veil of blindness through the revelation of Jesus. In Acts 2, Luke recorded the commencement of the Holy Spirit as the empowering agent to turn people to Christ. As the promised divine agent, the Holy Spirit inaugurated the building of the New Testament ecclesia. According to Acts 1.8, the original apostles needed divine empowerment to commence the building of the ecclesia. This empowerment began with regeneration. That is the implantation of divine potency that provided the followers of Jesus illumination of scripture, faith, obedience, and boldness. This empowerment was confirmed by supernatural signs, including speaking in languages unknown to them, all of which was performed through the disciples at the pleasure of God. The first phase of this work started on the day of Pentecost, 10 days after the ascension of Jesus. The Holy Spirit empowered about 120 of, of his followers. The first seven chapters of Acts record the early days of the formation of the ecclesia in Jerusalem. The second phase commenced after Stephen was martyred. A severe persecution broke out against the ecclesia in Jerusalem that scattered many of the disciples into Judea and Samaria. Philip went into Samaria and performed supernatural signs. Peter and John went down to Samaria and laid hands on people to receive the Holy Spirit. Then in the third phase and final phase began in chapter 10 when Peter was sent to the home of a Roman centurion named Cornelius to share about the resurrection of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins through Jesus. Cornelius, a Roman soldier, is a type of those who be, <clears throat> those beyond Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, that is those to the end of the earth. The Holy Spirit came upon Cornelius as manifested by the speaking in other tongues. By chapter 10 of Acts, one could argue that Acts 1-8 was fulfilled, at least in part, that the people from all these groups received the witness of the mighty works of God through Jesus and the gift of forgiveness of sins. The Holy Spirit enabled the followers of Jesus to be agents of the kingdom of God and commenced the building of the ecclesia as never before. Mankind was now enabled to fulfill the creation mandate. Now, a word of application. The special grace of divine empowerment. Common grace is the difference between utter depravity, that is being as bad as one could be, and total depravity, being unable to meet God's standard of righteousness. Common grace is divine empowerment that enables mankind to rise above utter depravity and obey some of God's rudimentary principles. For example, God graciously grants mankind common grace to work and speak wisely. Consider the following verses. A worker's appetite works for him because his hunger urges him on. Proverbs 16, 26. 
or however Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he's considered perceptive. See, hunger is a gift from God that drives people to work so they could eat. And even fools have some rudimentary ability to, at times, keep quiet, which can be very wise. This is the gift of common grace. But common grace is limited. Note the words from Hosea. The work, the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous walk in them. But the rebellious, i.e. the unrighteous, stumble in them. You see, the unrighteous are going to try to walk in the righteous ways because only God's righteous ways work. But eventually, the common grace that they're given is going to be run out. It's not going to be enough to enable them to walk profoundly. See, so though the rebellious have limited ability to obey God, in the end, they will fail. What fools need is divine empowerment. Beyond common grace, they need special grace. Special grace is the empowerment from the Holy Spirit to enable more than rudimentary alignment with the will and ways of God. For for anyone to function well in governing life, any area of life, self-governance, family governance, ecclesia governance, organizational governance, and community governance requires special grace. Special grace comes from the indwelling empowerment of the Holy Spirit that first regenerates and then facilitates faith in and obedience to Jesus and boldness to serve Jesus. This is a level of empowerment beyond common grace that will enable a person to live increasingly aligned with the will and ways of God. This is grace that can asymptotically overcome total depravity, something that common grace can never do, and enable people to mature in Christ, not become perfect, You don't fully get perfected in this life, but you can grow and grow and grow and grow. As people mature, their ability to fulfill the creation mandate increases, and consequently their work product increasingly reflects the excellence of Christ, who became known as the carpenter. In the context of organizations, special grace is essential to facilitate excellence through the delivery of the right value proposition to the right people in the right way, at the, to- at the right time, in the right place, and for the right reason. To do this requires organizations to align with the will and ways of God. The fruit of this alignment will be products and services delivered on time, on scope, and on budget. Organizations comprised of people who only operate in common grace can never deliver excellent value propositions. This requires organizations populated by people who enjoy the gift of the special grace of God. During this time of history between the advents of Jesus while he is building his ecclesia, his people are empowered by his spirit to do his will according to his ways. In every jurisdiction, excellence, not complete perfection, is achievable because Jesus empowers his people to be salt and light for his glory. The major question today is whether people work work, uh, value work as Jesus does, Currently, the primary mandate for most professing Christians seems to be the so-called Great Commission from Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This mandate is a charge to make disciples, but is commonly misconstrued as a mandate for world evangelism. The pedestrian interpretation reflects a poor understanding of discipleship. True disciples will live like Jesus. 
totally committed to alignment with the will and ways of God, and therefore will fulfill their role in the creation mandate, which means they will value work because we are created to work. Arguably, the true Great Commission is the creation mandate, not the discipleship mandate of Matthew 28. The discipleship mandate is a charge to produce followers of Jesus who are empowered to obey the creation mandate. Consequently, the focus of Christians should be should be to rule God's creation with such excellence that those who do not know Jesus will see him through their work. This can only be accomplished by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit at work in Christians, the special grace of God. This then makes people who know Christ, who are empowered by the Holy Spirit, salt and light in the world. May we learn to so live in Jesus' name. Amen.